Welcome to the Institute of Buddhist Studies podcast. The following is part 5 of Dennis Hirota's 2010 Rukoku lecture series entitled Shinran's Phenomenology of Religious Life. Professor Hirota spoke at the Institute in March of 2010 over the course of three days. Please be sure to download this complete series of lectures from our website at podcast.shin-ibs.edu or directly from the iTunes Music Store. Afternoon. Uh, I think uh, we, are, we are towards the end of the series now. Uh, we've been considering topics uh, in Shinran's thought that uh, seem to me uh, might be illuminated uh, through a consideration uh, from a comparative perspective. Uh, we have taken up the topic of truth. Uh, last time, yesterday, uh, we considered uh, the topic of time. Uh, and uh, today, I hope to go on to one, one further topic. Dwelling is, uh, I think, an important term both for Shinran and for Heidegger. Uh, and my sense of it is that it has to do with uh, our ongoing lives in the world uh, and how this is handled in the two thinkers. Uh, often, Pure Land Buddhism is thought of chiefly in a kind of a futuristic mode um, or as a kind of a world rejection, uh, uh, the aspiration for the Pure Land and so on. But I think uh, we've seen uh, in terms of uh, temporality uh, Shinran's concern uh, with, with time, with, with, the, with the present, uh, this a common theme both in uh, the phenomenological thinkers that we've uh, taken up uh, and very important to Shinran. Uh, and I, I think it is a topic perhaps neglected, uh, but one that is very important for Shin Buddhists. And so I will move on to that uh, a little later today. I'd like to continue our discussion yesterday uh, just a bit. I, I don't want to go into much detail, uh, but uh, we've been considering uh, the problem of time, and I just wanted to make uh, some few general a few general comments, uh, particularly about some of the handouts. Uh, we we were looking at uh, Augustine's treatment of time and the paradoxes of time, and as I mentioned yesterday, Augustine plays a very key role, especially in tra uh, Christian tradition, in in bringing up certain uh, paradoxes of time. Uh, and uh, we, we uh, looked at uh, uh, Augustine's uh, opening comments or the way he raises the problem, the issue of temporality uh, in uh, the Confessions. This is the 11th uh, book of uh, Augustine's Confessions uh, where he takes up the, the issue of time. Uh, <clears throat> And he, he raises uh, the, the sort of general paradox, and, uh, and I'll just sketch this. Uh, we have our usual uh, notion of time as, say, objective, as external to us, as uh, ourselves uh, existing in time, the whole world uh, existing uh, in this larger framework of the flow of time. A uh, kind of cosmological time, objective time, uh, um, and probably uh, still our common sense uh, of 
time. Uh, and the paradox um, that uh, Augustine begins with, of course, is the question of, well, if as uh, taught in Genesis, uh, God created uh, heaven and earth at some certain point in time, and uh, presumably in, in the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, vision of history, at, at some point, um, uh, this, this creation uh, will disappear, at least in, in, in the way it is. Uh, but the, the paradox turns on the question, uh, well, if God created uh, uh, heaven and earth in seven days, as taught in Genesis, at some point, uh, then what was God doing uh, before you know, uh, we think of God also as existing in time uh, and then at some point in creating uh, the world. Uh, uh, so what, what was he doing if there is a vast expanse of time before the creation of the world uh, then uh, why uh, did it take him so long uh, to get around to, to uh, the creation and so on. And as we saw uh, yesterday uh, Augustine's uh, a solution or resolution of this problem uh, has to do uh, uh, with uh, a sense of God as outside of time. In other words, he brackets uh, creation uh, or say, uh, he states that uh, in fact uh, time does not uh, start at this at some, uh, I mean, the, the creation does not occur at some point in time. Time is part of creation. Um, uh, in other words, uh, time or temporality comes into existence with the creation of heaven and earth. Uh, and uh, God is not in time. Time is part of God's creation. So God stands beyond um, this uh, the, our, our usual sense of, of temporal flow. In other words, uh, God uh, would stand at, uh, a, well, outside. However it's imagined, uh, it would be a vision of eternity. Uh, God does not move in time. Uh, God does not exist in time. Uh, time, rather, exists in God's creation. Uh, uh, so that that was one one paradox that um, that Augustine uh, resolves in, in in this way. So uh, there there are other a number of questions that arise from here. Uh, one is all right. Then what is time? Uh, how do we know time and so on? Uh, and as we as we saw uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, the problem of God does not exist in time, but we exist in time. Uh, we all know what time is. Uh, uh, there, there's the past, the present, and the future. Say this is the present. Uh, then uh, we know there was a past. We know there will be future, uh, presumably. Uh, we have this strong sense of the flow of time. But when we look for the future, uh, by definition, it's what, not, what has not yet come into existence. When we look for the past, 
uh, by definition it is what has already passed away and is no longer present. And when we look for the present, try to, to seize upon the present, we cannot. Uh, any instant that we seize upon immediately uh, becomes the past. And the, pe the present is the present as time flowing into the past. Uh, so then where, where can we locate time? And of course, uh, as we saw yesterday, Augustine's answer is, um, it is essentially located in, in the human mind, in the human awareness or consciousness. In other words, uh, the past is present in the present as, um, as memory uh, in the human mind. The future is present already, present uh, in the human mind at present uh, as anticipation or expectation uh, and uh, the, the present is in our, our uh, present uh, attention or observation, so on, our, our focus on, on the present experience. Uh, so uh, it, if, if we sketch this, I, um, there, there's nothing in uh, Augustine, but he, he uses the terms uh, distension as we saw uh, and intention. Uh, the mind, uh, in the mind, uh, well, there is an, a distension of the mind into the past and into the future in terms of memory and uh, expectation. Uh, and this is this is uh, our experience of time. This is what time is for us. This is how we locate time. Um, uh, so it is in, uh, uh, in, in, in terms of, of the human's subjectivity uh, that uh, Augustine treats uh, the problem of time, not not a an objectified cosmological time. Uh, which leads to all sorts of paradoxes. Now, the time should be considered in terms of, of human experience. And we see here also uh, that there is a kind of parallel. Or, I, of course, uh, there, there's no sketch like this, but if God stands in eternity outside the flow of time, uh, uh, all of time is... Uh, a present to 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 God in in God's present in in God's eternity, uh, uh, and, and there's a kind of parallel that, that might be drawn um, through our own human experience of time, uh, where 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 the mind um, has uh, the perception of time uh, through memory and expectation, uh, but um, it. This exists in the present. Uh, there is this uh, sort of condensation or in, in, into the human subjectivity of the present. Uh, and uh, I think, as we saw yesterday also, uh, Ricord draws upon this, uh, this model. Uh, I, um, uh, <clears throat> on, the, on the handout, uh, and this is uh, on yesterday's handout. This was uh, page 10 of the handout. Uh, 
there, there, there is, uh, or Augustine speaks of, a, a kind of uh, uh, a sense of intention, uh, which he uh, he he tends to model on. Uh, uh, this relationship between time and eternity. Uh, in other words, uh, the intention has the, has the integrating or unifying uh, power uh, and can stand in relation to time uh, somewhat as uh, God can, uh, God stands in relation to the time of the universe. For Ricoeur, uh, additionally, um, and the, uh, uh, this relationship uh, uh, may be understood also uh, in terms of narrative. Uh, the uh, quotation from Ricoeur uh, on page on page ten of the handout in the middle of the page, uh, uh, there's the the second paragraph on on page ten, the right side. Uh, for Ricoeur, it is out of a dialectic that time comes to be grasped as distension and comes to enable narrative. Uh, narration is grounded in time's approximation to eternity. And uh, what, what, um, what Ricoeur uh, is uh, trying to do uh, in his work, uh, Time, and narrative is uh, to to go somewhat beyond uh, the the one-sided subjective uh, sort of time of uh, of Augustine, um, and to show how how narrative functions in human awareness uh, to give shape uh, to to our experience. Uh, uh, a narrative is a, is a certain means of uh, grasping the human experience of time uh, and making time meaningful, making some sort of flow of time meaningful. Uh, but uh, again, uh, the, the, the narrative function, in other words, the unifying uh, function, integrating or shaping function of narrative has, has the same uh, uh, relationship uh, in, in the dialectic of intention to distension or eternity to, to time itself. It's shaping, it grasps as a whole uh, uh, and so on. Uh, I, I just uh, mention these things because uh, I think uh, they, they are potentially uh, very useful in understanding uh, the importance uh, not only of, of time in Shinran, but also the narrative in Pure Land Buddhism, uh, which I think is again a, a topic perhaps uh, not um, often treated uh, in the traditional scholarship. Uh, and I, I have given uh, an a example uh, of uh, a treatment uh, of time uh, in uh, in Shinran um, in the last part of the handout. This is from 
uh, page 13 of the handout, uh, yesterday's handout. Uh, this is the first part of a rather brief essay uh, by Nishitani Keiji. Uh, the title, uh, the page 13, the handout, The Problem of Time in Shinran. Uh, I think, uh, although this is a very brief essay, um, this is uh, the best treatment of time, the problem, understanding of time in Chinran that I know of. Uh, there, there are very few works, I think, uh, that take up this topic, uh, and I think uh, Nishitani's uh, uh, treatment uh, is um, uh, extremely uh, insightful. I also uh, would like to draw, especially uh, students uh, here, to to this to this essay, um, because uh, at at the beginning, uh, Nishtani explains a bit about his method, uh, and I think uh, this essay gives a, a really a superb example uh, of a reading of uh, Shinran's words uh, that, uh, that draws out uh, Shinran's meaning. Uh, I mean, uh, he takes up a passage in Tanisho uh, that uh, is very well known, of course, uh, the Tanisho from the passage from the postscript, uh, one, one of the quotations uh, from Shinran in uh, Yuyan's postscript. Um, I'll read, just read through uh, the passage. When I consider again and again uh, the vow of Amida, which arose from five kalpas of meditation, I realize that it was entirely for the sake of myself alone. Then how I am filled with gratitude for the primal vow in which Amida settled on saving me, uh, though I am so burdened with karma. Now, uh, I realized that it was entirely uh, for the sake of myself alone. Uh, often, uh, this, this passage, of course, is very often quoted, uh, but often it is understood as, uh, again, a kind of uh, religious hyperbole. Uh, in other words, Shinran, of course, knows that the vow was made uh, for all sentient beings and not for himself alone. Um, but he says this out of some uh, intensity of experience or uh, uh, that, that kind of explanation I think uh, is very common. It is a kind of uh, uh, reading um, that tries to make uh, sense uh, of the passage uh, from our what, ordinary perspective. Uh, Nishtani uh, explains in, uh, at the beginning uh, this this would be about the fifth line of his um, essay. Again, very briefly, but I think in, in a, a concise manner here. Uh, in seeking to come to an understanding of this passage, it is above all important that the attitude taken be one of an existential grasp rooted in one's own self existing here and now. Uh, for this was precisely the attitude of Shinran himself as expressed in these words. In other words, we have to read the way Shinran um, uh, wrote the passage or stated the passage. We have to, to um, uh, uh, achieve the same uh, kind of 
attitude in order to grasp the passage. Uh, and uh, if, if we uh, insist on uh, uh, imposing a kind of common sense vision on the passage, on Shinran's words, uh, then we can only uh, come to an inadequate uh, reading or understanding. Uh, Professor Nishtani's uh, reading, uh, although he doesn't mention uh, Augustine uh, directly, I think uh, Augustine again is is partially behind uh, his um, his treatment. Uh, he does raise uh, the problem of predestination, which. Uh, does occur in Augustine. The problem, of course, is that if God uh, uh, stands in eternity and all of time, all of the time of creation uh, stands before him, visible to him, and God, of course, being omniscient, uh, knows the entirety. Uh, and we, of course, are moving along uh, in the flow of time. Uh, then uh, God knows uh, what 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 our what destiny will be. Um, God knows above all uh, whether uh, uh, we we can conform to God's will or uh, essentially uh, fall into hell and so on. Uh, does that mean uh, that in fact we we don't have a free will? Uh, this, of course, uh, the, the question that arises from this kind of notion of predestination. Uh, I think this is an interesting uh, topic because, in a way, and, and I think uh, Nishtani raises this very well, I, I don't think uh, uh, we should spend too much time on it, but uh, a, a very similar problem as the problem of predestination arises uh, in terms of of the vow, of Amida's vow. In other words, uh, Amida Buddha, uh, according to the narrative, of course, uh, there, there would be a previous flow of time, but at, at some point, uh, uh, Ohozo-Bosatz uh, appears uh, in the world, uh, takes vows, performs practices for uh, infinite uh, eons, uh, and then uh, ten kalpas ago, uh, 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 fulfilled uh, the vows and became Amita Buddha, and so on. So at that point, uh, at that point, the vows are fulfilled. The question that arises, of course, it doesn't, it is not raised very much uh, within uh, Shin tradition. I think it's not uh, generally considered a problem. But um, uh, the the problem becomes then. Uh, if the vow is already fulfilled, uh, why are we still here? Uh, why um, is, is, is our uh, birth in the Pure Land uh, already as settled the way we are? Um, if it's not settled, how come uh, Amida Buddha already has uh, attained enlightenment and so on? Uh, so the, there, there is a kind of similar uh, paradox that un underlies the narrative uh, of the vow. And, and the problem is, um, as, as uh, Nishitani raises very clearly, in terms of Shinran's uh, words, uh, 
uh, it, it, I think uh, it, a similar um, uh, issue um, it may be seen here. Uh, the issue arises. The issue arises uh, because of Nishitani's uh, very literal reading of Shinran, and I think you'll you'll see this uh, if you uh, read through um, the essay. Uh, in other words, uh, he takes uh, Shinran at his word. Um, when Shinran says, I realize that it was entirely for the sake of myself alone, uh, then um, Nishitani takes this as an expression uh, of a kind of simultaneity uh, in which, in fact, when Abida or makes the vow, Shinran is there. Uh, before Amida Buddha uh, is present uh, at uh, the establishment and the fulfillment of the vow is Shinran as he exists uh, uh, as a person living in the common court period uh, is uh, is present uh, at uh, the fulfillment of the vow before Amida Buddha and in that sense uh, very directly uh, Amida makes the vow in order uh, to save Shinran. Uh, I think this kind of understanding, the very um, uh, unusual, uh, not taken up uh, in traditional study, but but again, I think a literal reading uh, of Shinran's words and one that uh, opens up a, a very important issue in Shinran. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, uh, the, the, the sort of crux of uh, Nishitani's essay uh, may be found, um, let's see, I, uh, on uh, page 15 of, of the handout. Uh, in uh, on the starting on uh, the left hand side uh, the numbered paragraphs uh, for, so for one uh, Bodhisattva Dhammakara vow arising from his five kalpas of meditation and its fulfillment is a is an event which at whatever point in history and by whatever uh, ancient uh, being in this world that it might be seen uh, must always be seen as something uh, which has preceded. In other words, Nishtani uh, 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 sort of locks out uh, a, a time of, uh, a, of of the primal vow, and that is similar, uh, perhaps, to Augustine's move. Uh, but all all beings, since the vow was made uh, to save all sentient beings, and uh, uh, the, the ten kalpas ago, uh, these uh, infinite eons ago, when the vow was fulfilled, uh, Nishtani takes that to indicate um, that the fulfillment uh, of the vow for any sentient being is always uh, the past. So the vow stands in the past uh, along, uh, along the, the line of temporal flow. Uh, 
the fulfillment of the primal vow is further back in the past than any point in the past. Uh, the time of the fulfillment is one that at whatever point in time uh, is always historically the past. So that, from the narrative, um, the vow was fulfilled in the past. Uh, and the second uh, main point, uh, however, the primal vow fulfilled in that time manifests itself directly to each sentient being within a historical time and each sentient being in whatever time he exists however near or far in the past, or however near or far in the future, becomes present uh, in the time of the vow's fulfillment through the power of the primal vow, turning itself over to him. Um, and through, well, uh, Nishtani uh, uses uh, the expression decision. Nishtani, um, I, I, in a way, sort of a, a, a Zen uh, Perspective on Shinran, um, but essentially the the, the realization of Shinjin. Um, and so, at the point of the realization of Shinjin, uh, um, the the fulfillment of, of the vow becomes present to the person. Uh, the person uh, becomes present, and perhaps you can call it this at at the fulfillment of the vow in the past, um, and. Uh, this is paradoxical, uh, but Nishtani insists on, on the simultaneity of these two times. Um, and, uh, uh, in the same way, although not expressed here, uh, at, the, at the time of uh, the realization of Shinjin, uh, then a person's uh, birth uh, in the Pure Land, in the future, uh, is already uh, uh, decided. Uh, so, uh, in some sense, uh, the, 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 there is the simultaneity uh, also of the present as the realization of Shinjin uh, and, and the future uh, as uh, the birth uh, in the Pure Land. Um, so, uh, again, for, for Nishtani, uh, there, there is a simultaneity uh, of these three times uh, and uh, he speaks of it uh, uh, in basically Mahayana terms, Mahayana Buddhist terms. There, there is a, a kind of paradoxical uh, sort of non-duality. Um, a, a succession, he says, uh, which conforms w with non-succession uh, or a, dis a discrimin discrimination uh, in temporal flow um, that is uh, or conforms with a, a non-discrimination of uh, simultaneity. Uh, uh, and uh, in, the, in the essay, uh, he, he, he draws out uh, this uh, uh, understanding of time in Shinran uh, very fully. Uh, well, I only uh, want to um, sort of indicate here uh, one way uh, in which a comparative perspective uh, might cast light on on problem on this problem of temporality and also on on the problem of narrative uh, in in Chinran's thought uh, in a way that uh, is not commonly done. 
in in the traditional scholarship. Uh, but I, I hope you, you will have time to, to look through uh, this essay uh, by uh, Nishtani. Uh, as, as, I, as I mentioned, I think uh, that there is a, a similarity in, in structure, uh, and, and this would be part of the uh, advantage uh, of uh, using a comparative perspective. I think. Uh, there's a similarity between uh, the, the problem of time and eternity uh, as it occurs in Christian tradition and, and, and the problem of uh, the narrative of the primal vow, as I say, as, as Nishitani sees in Shinran's words um, through a literal reading. Uh, and, I, and I think, um, as I mentioned, uh, I think uh, in addition to uh, the issue of temporality um, or the issue uh, of narrative, uh, neither of which are uh, or have been traditionally treated much, um, there, there is a lesson in Nishtani about reading, how to read Shinran. Uh, and, I, and I think this is uh, one that is, uh, apart from the problem of time, extremely uh, important for us. So uh, t today's uh, topic is dwelling, and this would be the third, along with truth and temp temporality of time, um, a, a topic, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, that I think has been somewhat neglected in, in the tradition, but that um, I, I think is extremely important um, uh, to Shinran uh, in his thought, and perhaps um, it needs to be uh, treated uh, uh, more carefully. Uh, the, the topic of dwelling, uh, uh, and um, I, I will take a somewhat uh, roundabout route to get there, but um, I, I, I will um, also We consider this this topic in in Heidegger, and I, and I think again um, by looking at Shinran in a kind of comparative light, it, it would highlights uh, sort of themes like uh, dwelling, uh, which uh, not only have been marginalized, uh, not treated much in the tradition, but also are uh, especially meaningful for us, I think, um, at present. Um, in our concerns in carrying on our lives in the world. So I, I'm, uh, I, I, I will basically uh, re read through the material in, in the handout, beginning with um, section A. Uh, I will pose here, I begin um, the first uh, page of, of the handout. Uh, I will pose here that our understanding of Shinran may be deepened, and more importantly, our current methodologies for studying his Buddhist thought may be amended and enriched by bringing the basic orientation of his Buddhist path into conversation with contemporary thought, such as that of Heidegger. Uh, despite the vast differences in their intellectual backgrounds, cultural contexts, and purposes, 
as part of the fundamental orientation of their work, both Shinran and Heidegger take as their starting point profound limitations and distortions in human awareness. And, and again, I've, I've stressed this as uh, this really making possible the comparison uh, in a way that um, I, I think is, is more difficult um, even um, in, say, considering uh, other forms of, of, uh, of Buddhism even. Uh, both Chinran and Heidegger consequently uh, confront a similar problem, the inadequacy of what they both might describe as the deeply ingrained common sense notion that human knowledge and judgments about the world are based on the relationship of an autonomous ego subject and stable objects around us. This shared challenge leads them both to tackle the question of how awareness genuinely arises from within the context of bounded conditioned experience. Uh, and this, this, this problem, how, how, do, how do we who uh, never uh, can overcome or um, eradicate our own blind passions uh, come to a, a genuine awareness? A very similar problems for both uh, Shinran and Heidegger, I think. Uh, it, it, it is above all for this reason that bringing these two thinkers into comparative consideration may be both plausible and potentially fruitful. I might note that recent research indicating the influence of uh, Luther on Heidegger's early thought suggests not only that underlying the similarities between the thought of uh, Heidegger and Shinran is the often remarked resemblance between Luther and Shinran, but also that the early Heidegger uh, may cast significant light on the comparative study uh, of uh, the two religious thinkers. Uh, so uh, Heidegger perhaps also uh, providing a kind of bridge for dialogue with, uh, with Western tradition. Uh, to pursue the similarities between Chinran and Heidegger further, uh, we find that they arrive at structurally analogous notions of the nature of human engagement with what is true. Both thinkers seek to delineate the contours of human awareness, uh, which itself implies a dichotomy of knower and known. This is, again, uh, built into uh, our, our awareness. Um, uh, and in, in, in Buddhist thought, uh, of course, the dichotomy of subject and object uh, is something that must be overcome. Uh, but for us, uh, in our uh, lives, uh, we, we can never overcome this, this kind of dichotomous thinking, uh, which is, from a Buddhist perspective, a form of ignorance contours of human awareness without the reification of either the knowing subject or known object, uh, which both thinkers regard as falsifying and, in essence, resulting in a flawed mode of human existence in ignorance and attachment. Uh, and I think we've seen this uh, in Heidegger's notion of errancy being attached to uh, what, what is uh, immediately perceived, the things uh, one immediately sees in the world around one, and, and being ignorant, therefore, ignoring um, the, the background of what makes the appearance of things possible. 
this thinking leads in both fig figures to the development of two broad interrelated motifs that mirror each other from opposite sides of the dichotomy of awareness. On the side of the knower, there is engagement uh, with what is true and real wholly from within a prior horizon of directed behavior, that is, ignorance or oblivion. Um, so we, we are within it, the horizon of our own ignorance. We cannot extract ourselves. Uh, how is it possible that we, in our ignorance, uh, can uh, be engaged with what is true and real? Uh, this is uh, a, a basic problem, even from a Buddhist perspective. Uh, on the side of the known, uh, there is truth as apprehensible form emergent out of, formla uh, out of formlessness and inconceivability. And so we, we must sort of go out of ourselves uh, in order to perceive and what is true and real, what is formless or inconceivable must appear as form to us. So there is this, this interaction. And I think we've seen uh, yesterday also how in both in Shinran and in Heidegger um, there, there are attempts to uh, describe this interaction. In their interaction, uh, these two motifs together uh, point to the arising of an ineluctably doubled structure of awareness in which truth is simultaneous with and inseparable from untruth. Uh, in Shinran's terms, blind passions and enlightenment are not two in substance. In Heidegger's terms, truth as unconcealedness, uh, which is always partial and per perspectival, is inseparable from withdrawal and concealedness. Uh, so in both Shinran and, he and in Heidegger, there is uh, this recognition, acknowledgement, um, that the truth that we, we grasp has an opposite dimension of untruth uh, and our uh, apprehension of truth is always of that kind or sh but usually we ignore the untruth part um, the concealedness uh, or our own blind passions uh, and this is essentially life in ignorance uh, the similarity in basic orientation reveals itself in interpretive applications as well. Regarding uh, Shinran's response to Joshin's query mentioned uh, above or earlier, this was uh, we, we looked at in the first lecture, and more broadly, his distinction of the provisional and true that forms a pervasive undercurrent in his thought, uh, we find an illuminating parallel in Heidegger's early lectures, The Phenomenology of Religious Life. Uh, there Heidegger takes up Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, the, the first of which is the earliest New Testament document um, as manifesting the religious existence of what he calls primal Christianity. Heidegger's concern, like Shinran's, is not the intellectual grasp of doctrinal propositions, but elucidating uh, the mode of existence manifested in the written communication. Uh, because of this shared concern, Heidegger's central themes in his discussion of uh, First Thessalonians, uh, language as a call that occasions entrance uh, into religious existence, and the temporality of alreadiness, or already having become in relation uh, to the parousia or second coming of Christ. 
also have significant analogs in Jinran's dis, uh, distinctive concerns with linguisticality and uh, temporality. Uh, we won't have time to go into um, uh, Heidegger's discussion of Paul. Uh, as mentioned here, the first Thessalonians is, is the oldest surviving of um, Paul's letters. Uh, and so it is uh, the, the earliest part of the New Testament. I think Heidegger takes it up uh, because he is looking for the, this, this very early uh, expression of uh, Christian uh, religious existence. Uh, and uh, I mentioned it here, but but there there's an interesting problem that comes up in the letter, uh, and I'll just describe it briefly. Uh, uh, apparent, uh, Paul's letters, of course, are in general written from a distance to uh, to the uh, the the following that he has. Uh, created through his missionary work, Paul, of course, uh, feeling an urgent mission to spread uh, the Christian mes message uh, throughout the known world. And so his constant travel um, as, a, as a traveling preacher is uh, a, a kind of um, inspiration, I think, to a kind of model for, for a, 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 a person in, in propagation. He would travel to places and probably preach in a, in a marketplace, try to attract listeners and um, ex explain um, Christ's message, Christ's message that the kingdom of God uh, is at hand, will be coming soon. Uh, I think uh, it, it is clear from Paul's letters that he first uh, believed that the second coming of Christ, uh, which of course would be um, this point at the, at the end of, of creation, where the world as we know it would come to an end uh, and, and uh, God would uh, make over uh, the world uh, and uh, there, there would be a, a judgment of all human beings. Um, so that they would either uh, fall into hell or uh, be able to go to um, <clears throat> uh, the kingdom, uh, enter the kingdom uh, of God. Um, uh, Paul felt or believed that this would happen uh, very quickly. He is preaching uh, perhaps uh, 20 years um, after uh, the crucifixion. Uh, and, and he conveys his sense of urgency uh, to um, to the people he preaches to, in this case the Thessalonians uh, in Thessalonica uh, in, in, in Greece, northern Greece. <clears throat> and so they also believe that uh, since, since the message is that the kingdom of uh, God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that they must make their preparation uh, and so that they will be able to to join those who are um, able to enter God and uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, but after Paul has moved on to other locales in order to spread the teaching, um, and the, the people of Thessalonica are waiting uh, for the second coming, uh, and some among them uh, die uh, before uh, the second coming. Uh, and this is a cause of some concern. 
because it is unclear uh, what will happen. Everyone expected uh, that they would be around uh, for the second coming of Christ. Um, and, uh, but uh, so the question, what happens uh, to those uh, who, who die? And, and, and so uh, they make, uh, they write in letters to Paul uh, their questions about uh, the second coming. Well, what happens to the people who die before Christ returns? Uh, and above all, uh, when, when, when is Christ going to, to appear? And of course, in this world and in, in the kingdom of, of heaven appear and so on. Uh, and uh, uh, Paul, of course, reassures them. Uh, and gradually in, the, in his letters, he, um, I think, has is, is, uh, come to um, extend the period of the second coming. In, in other words, um, it, it's not clear. But... but um, um, Paul says there's no there's no problem. Uh, those who have died will go before the living uh, in into the kingdom of heaven. And when when Christ appears, he will appear uh, in the clouds, uh, in the sky. Um, and first of all, the, the dead uh, who are able to enter the kingdom of God will will rise, and then the living will follow them, and so on. So there's no problem there. As to when, when, it, when the second coming will occur, um, Paul says um, there's no need to, say, indicate uh, a, a point on the calendar uh, because uh, you already know. You already know. Uh, and and uh, Heidegger jumps on this, this expression. Uh, in other words, it is already settled uh, in some sense, uh, and you, um, in any case, he says that um, it, it will occur like um, uh, like a a, a, a thief uh, in, in the night and so on. But but you need not be um, surprised, and you need not seek. Uh, for security and some sort of reassurance and so on. And in a way, it, it reminds me of um, the second chapter of, um, of Tanisha, uh, because you already know. And, and the, important thing, the important thing is to live in the expectation uh, and, and, and in the knowledge of, of the second coming. Um, so it is, it is, a, it is a kind of um, a, 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 an answer or resolution that turns on uh, on this kind of um, simultaneity uh, in a way. Uh, in, in any case, uh, Heidegger uh, brings that out uh, very well, uh, and. Um, and, and 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 I think um, there are also there 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 are possibilities for uh, considering um, uh, Shinran uh, in in comparison. Um, but what what I have uh, tried to uh, emphasize here, well, uh, 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 um, 
uh, Paul develops his assertion in concrete terms by distinguishing two groups of people by their relation uh, to the uh, parousia, the, the second coming. Uh, those who seek peace and security, uh, but who dwell in darkness and are destined for sudden destruction, uh, and those uh, who live in wakefulness and self-awareness. Uh, of course, uh, the true Christians, the true Christians in, in sort of Christian religious uh, existence, living uh, in wakefulness and self-awareness, they're always... Um, uh, expecting the second coming, and those who uh, simply look for some sort of security, uh, but who who are uh, destined uh, for sudden destruction. Um, this is a distinction not merely of intellectual apprehension, uh, but of two modes of existence. And although uh, the contents differ, it resembles uh, Shinran's distinction of accommodated and true, or self-power in other power and genuine other power. Thus Shinran states, uh, there are two kinds of people who seek birth in the Pure Land, those of other power and those of self-power. This has been taught by the Indian masters and Pure Land teachers. I, I think this, it seems a very ordinary statement, uh, but I think it indicates uh, something very uh, Im important. First of all, uh, Shinran's concern uh, with, with the Pure Land uh, with, with the Pure Land following. In other words, uh, unlike Honan, as, as I mentioned in, in the first le lecture, Honan who's concerned about distinguishing the Pure Land school from all other forms of Buddhism, Shinran's major concern has to do with uh, a Pure Land Buddhists and, and essentially uh, the, the, the realization of, of Pure Land Buddhists. But there are, within the Pure Land following, uh, two kinds of people. Um, those of self-power and those of other power. And I, and I take this uh, to indicate Shinran's vision of or understanding of uh, these, these two, two different modes of existence, really. Uh, and it, it, is, it is not simply coming to a correct intellectual understanding. Uh, it, this this uh, other power and self-power uh, within other power, the other power, pure land path, um, this is an indication of uh, two, two separate, radically different uh, modes of understanding and of, of existence. Uh, <clears throat> uh, further, in rejecting common sense notions of an autonomous subjective agent, both Shinran uh, and Heidegger focus on an event of occurrence of truth. Uh, rather than a kind of consciousness or subjective experience, and on that which allows or empowers truth to emerge uh, for the always situated being. So there, there are two parts here, the, the awareness and the, the emergence of what is true and real, those two, two sides. Um, but but there, there is a kind of inter, interaction, a, a kind of occurrence, uh, and not simply the subject Sort of grasping the object, or understanding, or or uh, having faith in, and so on. Uh, Shinran calls the event the one thought moment of realizing Shinjin, and Heidegger uses the term the open region or clearing, uh, in which unconcealment or disclosure occurs. And in in a way, we can think of the the, the clearing. The clearing is. Uh, it's a kind of metaphor uh, in Heidegger 
and and uh, uh, Heidegger had had a home in in the Black Forest in Germany, um, where he often walked. And and the idea of a clearing is a, a clear a clearing in in a woods in a forest, and that is uh, where um, a, a place where uh, there is a break in, in the trees and and light comes in. Uh, and so there may be darkness around, but uh, within the clearing, uh, th there is light and things appear and so on. Um, so it, it's an interesting image. Uh, of course, um, there, there is the darkness, the sort of the, the sort of mystery around, and and the clearing, uh, which which uh, allows in, in light so that things appear. Uh, in, in a way, the clearing itself uh, is a metaphor for. Our, our, our human awareness itself or ourselves um, in, in other words human existence according to Heidegger sort of uh, allows things to to appear this is his, his perhaps earlier stance uh, later he turns more uh, to to look at the, the our, um, uh, speak of uh, the objects that appear but in either case uh, he's concerned with um, uh, not with one side or the other, but but concerned to delineate some sort of interaction that uh, manifests itself in, in awareness that an awareness that is uh, neither um, just uh, the, the human mind at work grasping things uh, nor uh, uh, things sort of existing as a real objects and so on. I would consider here the dynamic that enables the emergence of truth in the two thinkers and its field or locus as human existence, taking up three general aspects of a conception of an enabling activity in apprehension uh, that are developed by both Shinran and Heidegger, each in his own way. So there, there are three sort of parallel topics in, in both thinkers. First, the emerging of meaningful form from formlessness. Uh, second, the drawing or summoning of finite beings uh, to what is real and the human posture of waiting or listening. Uh, I think uh, uh, both in Shinra and Heidegger also, there, there's a kind of insistence on, on a kind of passive um, uh, posture not the the active human subject going going out and grasping things uh, but uh, but being attentive uh, waiting allowing things to appear and so on uh, yesterday we had uh, the word gelassenheit a uh, releasement and so on a third uh, the mode of fulfilled human existence uh, as dwelling um, and so we will we'll get to that topic but again uh, fulfilled human existence as as, as the mode mode of uh, existence. It may be said uh, that in the delineation of authentic dwelling as entering and abiding uh, in a field of polarities in interaction, each thinker sets forth a vision of human life that possesses ethical force. In relation to Heidegger, I will take uh, the published lecture uh, on, on the essence of truth as the point of departure, uh, considering its reference uh, to the early uh, Greek idea of phusis. Uh, but we'll also turn to several concepts developed in later essays, uh, including the relation uh, between earth and world as seen in the origin, the work of art, and the interaction among the fourfold of earth, sky, divinities, and mortals as set forth in 
uh, building, dwelling, thinking, the thing, and other essays. Uh, I, of course, this is a, a, a lot, um, uh, and uh, we will not be able to take these up in, in very much detail. Um, but I mentioned here the, the ethical force, and and again here I think in both, of course there are very deep um, ethical issues involved in Heidegger, uh, particularly because of his uh, Nazi complicity uh, during World War II, uh, especially uh, in about 1933 uh, when he was rector of uh, university took a post, which is essentially a a, uh, a government post, uh, and was a supporter of of uh, uh, Nazi ideology. Um, but uh, in in terms of dwelling, I think that there are uh, a sort of uh, possibilities uh, in in Shinran in particular uh, for developing a kind of. Um, eth ethical perspective, uh, which, which again I think is an area in in Shin thought that uh, has has not been adequately uh, developed uh, in, in, in the tradition. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I I think I, I just go on for a little, and then and then we could move on to to a break, perhaps. Uh, the the occurrence of truth as event. Um, first, uh, the emerging uh, of the other from formlessness. Uh, in his discussion of truth as freedom in On the Essence of Truth, Heiger states that on the side of the perceiving subject, human beings expose themselves in openness and approachability. At the same time, with regard to beings or things, he expresses a more dynamic aspect. Uh, beings as a whole reveal themselves as Fuss's nature. Uh, which here does not mean a particular sphere of beings, but rather beings as such as a whole, specifically in the sense of upsurgent presencing. And so the, 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 the arising or emergence, appearing of the world around us. Uh, Heidegger employs the term uh, fusis for the active appearing of the things of the world, the emergence itself uh, that may be distinguished as the ungraspable worlding of beings, worlding, wor the world world, he says uh, in, in Heidegger's language, world as a verb, worlding of beings as a whole prior to any specific form. Uh, and again, it, uh, Heidegger's sort of philosophical direction to look for enabling conditions. Uh, there, there are things that appear to us, what, what allows that to happen, what, what is going on in, in the appearance of things, the emergence of things, and so on. Uh, there's no further clarification of the term phusis in On the Essence of Truth, but it is discussed throughout Introduction to Metaphysics, a lecture course given five years later in 1935. There, Heidegger states that the Greek essence of truth is possible only together with the Greek essence of being as phusis. Concerning the meaning of the word phusis, it phusis says uh, what emerges from itself, for example, the emergence, the blossoming of a rose, the unfolding that opens itself up, the coming into appearance in such unfolding and holding itself and persisting in appearance. In short, the emerging abiding sway. Phusis is being itself by virtue of which 
beings first become and remain observable. There are two central points here that may be brought into comparison with Chinran's thought. First, being as fusus, while enabling beings as apprehended things and objects of understanding to become and remain observable is in itself an absurdion presencing of beings as such as a whole beyond concrete apprehension or conceptual grasp. So beyond, beyond, not, not conceived, not, not conceptually grasped. Uh, second, uh, although being or fusus is not itself a being, is not to be grasped as anything uh, such as reality as substratum, uh, but rather is a dynamic coming into an appearance, it may nevertheless be said to emerge from itself as the beings we apprehend. Uh, uh, on the one hand, being is ungraspable, while beings are precisely all that we perceive and comprehend. On the other hand, to borrow Heidegger's metaphor, being blossoms from itself, thus enabling beings to become observable and humans to apprehend them. Both Shinran and Heidegger face the question of the ultimate horizon of intelligibility and how it is traversed and entered from beyond. In other words, our, our horizon of what, what we can be aware of, what we can know, and from, from beyond the emergence of something into, into the horizon, uh, the boundary of, of our perception. Uh, with an inward movement in the direction of conditioned human existence. Without such emerging from itself or unfolding that opens itself up, human conceptuality would be no more than a chimerical construct, and Heidegger's thought would become a form of rootless idealism. Heidegger identifies this approaching movement into the field of receptivity, or uh, approaching us, coming into our awareness, field of awareness, or coming into appearance using the term fusus, uh, which is uh, to be understood as a dynamic power. And he, the, the English translation is sway here. Uh, a delicate balance, however, is required to preserve this emergence from reification. As a Greek word for beings, uh, fusus was translated into Latin natura, uh, but according to Heidegger, for the early Greeks, it does not yet mean a particular sphere of beings, but rather beings as such as a whole. In other words, it does not indicate primarily the things themselves of the natural environment that we perceive around us, but rather the very unfolding of an intelligible world. The focal meaning of Fusus concerns the event of standing forth, arising from con the concealed. This emergence of the intelligibility of things is the arising of a horizon or world that, while ungraspable itself, functions as a context for engaging and understanding what appears and takes its stand within. Shinran, late in life adopted as a crucial term for reality um, uh, the word jinen, uh, which, like the Latin translation of fusus, came to be used to indicate the world of nature. 
the word jinen is made up of two Chinese characters, ji meaning oneself or itself, and nen uh, as an adverbial suffix, sometimes similar to the English ly, indicating the manner of an occurrence, thus of itself or spontaneously for jinen. Uh, originally, jinen indicated the modality of occurrence seen in Heidegger's example of the blossoming of a rose naturally, spontaneously occurring out of itself, free of human contrivance. Shinran's usage of jinen holds a number of correspondences with Heidegger's discussion of the Greek phusis. For in both cases, the terms identify a dynamic of activity that functions centrally to resolve the shared problematic outlined above of characterizing the enabling of apprehension of what is, of truth, by human beings. A detailed discussion of Shinran's use of Jinan is not possible here. I will merely mention several parallels that may be drawn with Heidegger's Fusus, which suggests that to some extent these two concepts serve an uh, analogical role uh, in the structures of thought of the two thinkers. First, first Shinran adopted Jinan as a term synonymous with traditional terms for inconceivable reality. Thus he states, Supreme Buddha is formless and because of being formless is called Jinen. Like Heidegger's being, Jinen is understood to lie beyond the horizon of intelligibility. Again, like Heidegger's being, however, Jinen must not be taken to refer to a transcendent absolute. Rather, as with being as fusus, the basic meaning of jinan is dynamic and inseparable from beings. Jinan signifies being made to become so from the very beginning. For Shinran, jinan points in particular to the inward traversing across the horizon of human understanding and the manifesting of intelligible form. The fundamental model of this movement for Shinran is Amida Buddha. Amida Tathagata comes forth from suchness and manifests various bodies fulfilled, accommodated, and transformed. Uh, suchness, of course, in, inconceivable. Uh, we cannot grasp it at all. That is, Jinan expresses not only the formlessness that lies beyond human conceptuality, but also the dynamic manifesting of form that as form as that which is formless. Thus Shinran states, Buddha, uh, when appearing with form, is not called supreme nirvana. In order to make it uh, known that supreme Buddha is formless, the name Amida Buddha is expressly used. Uh, so I have been taught. Amida Buddha fulfills the purpose of making us know the significance of Jinen. Uh, just as Heidegger speaks of Fusus as what emerges from itself, the unfolding that opens itself up, Shinran also points to a continuity across the horizon of intelligibility that binds formlessness and form or concealment and disclosure. Uh, it is in comparison with Heidegger here that we find a means for grasping the potentially broad significance of Shinran's Jinen. 
Within Shin Buddhist tradition, the meaning of Jinan is largely restricted to the soteriological realm of Amida Buddha as arising from transcendent reality and becoming known to human beings. Pursuing a Heideggerian emphasis on Fusus as the dynamic of the emerging of beings as a whole suggests the possibility of an understanding of Jinan as likewise expressing Shinran's engagement with the larger issue of human awareness within the apprehension of reality as dynamic. Here, the things of the world are indeed, as with Heidegger, pervaded by reality and in some sense sacralized. This vision carries an ethical force, which we'll, we will discuss below. Uh, so I hear the, just the, the, the parallels between Heidegger's use of Fusus uh, and Jinan, Jinan Shinan within the context of, of um, the uh, description of, of human awareness that we've been looking at. I think uh, uh, perhaps uh, we should take a break now.